Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's our one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Can we get some regal music, Max? Thank you. Uh, They call me Ben. Noel, you and I are both big fans of the Sandman comics. Remember those? Oh, oh my God. Are you kidding? That's so funny. I tried to get my 13-year-old daughter to read the first volume of it. She's been getting into comics lately, and she came back to me and said, Dad, I I think I like it, but there's just a little too much going on. And then she used a golden excuse, which she would never use unless it was something she just didn't want to finish reading. I think it might be above my reading level. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, nice. Clever, clever, Eden. Uh, people recognize Eden from an earlier episode of the show. Do check it out. We asked for this regal music, and we're talking about Sandman because I don't know about you, but I learned about this person first through the excellent Sandman graphic novels, the stories by Neil Gaiman, uh, now being adapted, I believe, into a streaming series. Where are they going That's on with right. that? right. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Um, and friend of the show and the network, John Cameron Mitchell, is playing a really cool character from the Doll's House run of the comics, um, Hal the uh, landlord in the um, apartment building that that uh, series is uh, is based in. And without spoiling the excellent, excellent Sandman series too much, uh, there are a lot of real-life historical figures that feature in some part of the story, often as cameos. William Shakespeare shows up, for instance, and so does a fellow named Joshua Norton. I'm so excited to explore this guy today. So, Joshua Norton, the name sounds maybe a little, oh, I don't know. It's not super extraordinary. You know, it's not uh, one of those unique names like 
Winkerblatt Finkerstein or something. I just made that up. <laughs> uh, but but there there is there are multiple Josh Nortons probably alive now, uh, and there were multiple Josh Nortons alive throughout history. But this Joshua Norton, some called him insane, some called him homeless, and some called him emperor. How about that for an intro? But just don't call him during dinner, am I right? Hey. Ben, I got to follow up really quickly, and maybe this is a good way in. I do not recall Joshua Norton's part in the Sandman comics. Can you give us a little background as to how he uh, slots in there? Yeah, absolutely. So if you check out the Sandman series, you'll see that Norton appears in a story about a wager between Desire and Despair, who are two members of the godlike entity uh, or godlike family called the Endless. Mm-hmm. The main character of the Salmon is Dream. So Joshua Norton's real life is explained in the story in the context of this bet between the force of Desire and the force of despair. And really what's beautiful about the way Neil, I'm just going to call him Neil, writes it is that it so seamlessly incorporates the actual life of this genuine person. The real Joshua Norton was, he became famous in the U.S., but he was actually born in Britain in 1820. He was raised in South Africa, and he immigrated to the U.S. during the California Gold Rush. This is a story of fortunes built, fortunes lost, and in a very strange way, maybe, a bit of nobility found. He wasn't always known as Norton I, Emperor of the United States. No, it's funny, and just to, I, I am in the midst of rereading the Sandman series, not to be too Sandman heavy on this, but I'm really glad you brought it up because it's very top of mind for me right now. There's another story that involves another wager between Dream and um, Death about a man named Hob Gadling who swears off the idea of death, and you get to see how that kind of plays out as Morpheus or Dream or the Sandman goes back to visit him every 100 years in the same pub, and you get to see the life cycle of this character as he experiences the height of fortune that eternal life might offer, and then all of the uh, the desperate lows that the boredom and malaise of living forever might also offer. So there's some interesting parallels there, and I'm really excited to get to the part of the book uh, that involves our character who essentially, you say some called him crazy, some called him homeless, he and others called him Emperor of the United States. Yes, that's correct. But this was not always the case. As you say, he was born in Britain. I said 1820, but I I believe there's some discrepancy. It may have been 1819 or 1820. Uh, Before he was emperor, he was playing old Joshua Abraham Norton. He was born into a family of regular merchants, no nobility. Uh, As we said, he spent uh, most of his youth in South Africa. And his parents were people of the Jewish faith. They had left England to move to South Africa as part of a colonization scheme on the part of the government. And they were they were members of a group that we now call the 1820 Settlers. And his, his father worked there selling supplies for ships. You know, I said earlier, there's some debate and discrepancy around his exact date of birth. 
I think for the rest of this episode, let's go with February 4th, 1818, because mm-hmm. that is that that is how San Francisco determines the celebration of his birthday. And San Francisco, by the way, celebrates his birthday. But how how did he get from South Africa to the U.S.? Well, like you said, I mean, his family, they weren't necessarily the wealthiest of, of, of folks, or at least his direct parents, but he did end up getting a pretty nice inheritance, a sum of $40,000 at the time, which today would be worth around a million dollars or a little over a million dollars. He used that to go and make a run at uh, the gold rush that was happening in California in 1849. So he went to San Francisco, which at the time... You hear him talk about San Francisco in Deadwood a lot. Uh, this is the same time period, the show Deadwood on HBO, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it. it does a really good job of kind of summing up this period. Very lawless time, lots of crime, uh, very little oversight in terms of like codified rule of law. And even in terms of like law enforcement, as we know in Deadwood, there's really just a sheriff. And then you know, he kind of takes that role reluctantly. And it takes quite a lot to get people to answer for their crimes, of which there are many. Um, so what was once a very small little burg in San Francisco became this massive bustling metropolis with a population of around 25,000. And that happened very, very, very quickly. By the way, KGED.org has a fabulous article uh, about this subject and this historical figure written by Ryan Levy. You can actually, well, reported by, you can hear the piece on KQED.com to get a little bit more background. So we'll be using that as one of our sources. But when he arrived, um, he had already kind of gone through some of the uh, highs and lows that we talked about back when he was in South Africa. He built a business and lost a business. So he was kind of already prepared for the sort of um, seat of your pants kind of attitude that takes to jump in feet first into a very, very uh, competitive and dangerous situation there in San Francisco. So he started selling things like rice and flour, things that, you know, goods that people needed. Um, He was smart with his uh, earnings. He invested in real estate. He built things there in San Francisco. He built buildings on three of the four corners of uh, Sansom and Jackson Streets, uh, which was a very, very bustling and important uh, little intersection there in town. He also bought plots in the now incredibly, uh, I mean, every part of San Francisco is affluent and uh, most people are priced out of even hanging out there, but North Beach area. Exactly. The Tenderloin, which used to be the kind of artists, kind of like up and comer kind of area people that were more scrappy and wanted to get set up. But yeah, North Beach is now incredibly expensive waterfront area. So I, I want to step back a little bit um, with the question of how he got to San Francisco. He did get that inheritance, but he earned it in a very tragic way. And he was very young when this happened. He was 21 years old when he opened his own business. It went bankrupt in less than two years, just 18 months. And then by 1848, His parents, both of them, and two of his siblings had died. So there wasn't much holding him back. He was going to, you know, um, it's like in Hamilton, right? In New York, you can be a new man. It was that for him, but in San Francisco. And like you said, Noel, he did really well. He was, by 1852, 
one of the uh, upper crust, upper echelon members of society. He had this $40,000 stake. He flipped it to $250,000. But, you know, Gold Rush, kind of like a casino at this point, uh, his greed got the better of him. We talked about the rice stuff. He was planning his next expansion in his empire, his multifaceted business portfolio. And he knew there was a rice famine ongoing in China. So he said, you know what? Maybe I can corner the rice market by buying an entire shipload of Peruvian rice. And we got this from a Thoughtco article by Bill Lamb. So in December of 1852, China had this domestic rice famine going on, and they responded by placing a ban on any exportation of rice to any other countries. This meant that when Norton was planning his next business move, the price of rice in San Francisco had exploded by 800%. And wow. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, I'm going to buy these 200,000 pounds of rice from this ship that is coming to California from Peru, and I'm sure the prices are going to soar. So he puts 25 grand on the venture. And he has a couple of other people chipping in money as well. And then everything goes wrong. Well, the guy was clearly quite savvy because, I mean, you know, this would, I mean, you know, news would have traveled slower, certainly in those days. But A, he had to have the information when few other people had it about what was going on in, in China. Um, and B, he had to have figured out a way to convince the Peruvian merchants to sell him the entire boatload, you know, at a reasonable price. You'd think that they would have um, maybe been aware of this rice shortage and sold it for way, way more money. But they obviously didn't have that information or at least not to the degree that he had. It. But right, boom and bust. That, those are the uh, the key words for this period in American history. And uh, while boom was happening for him right off the bat, bust was not too far off the horizon. As you said, Ben, everything kind of went wrong. So I mentioned that it was a you know a smart move that he was able to convince these Peruvian merchants to sell him this rice at what would have been a premium based on the skyrocketing prices of rice. But apparently Peruvian rice, or at least this shipment of Peruvian rice was of pretty poor quality. And to answer my other question that I posed, there was also kind of a lot of it. So he wasn't nearly in the catbird seat position that he fancied himself in. Right. Yeah. There was not just lower quality rice, but there was tons of it because he didn't corner the market. That's what happened. Several other ships came in. They were also loaded with hundreds of thousands of pounds of rice. and. At this point, Joshua still could have recovered. He had multiple different businesses, right? He was heavy into real estate, for example, but he kind of shot himself in the foot and made his situation worse because he sued the guy who told him about this Peruvian rice. And this led to a court case that stretched on for four years, and he's paying Every day on this thing, he's paying all these expenses for this legal case, eventually goes to the state Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, and they say, we rule against you, Joshua Norton. So the bank forecloses on a ton of his real estate holdings. Eventually, by 1858, 
He has declared bankruptcy and he goes dark for a few years. He has to move out of his really nice home. He's not going to the social uh, social functions, you know, the soirees of the elite. Uh, he's gone for about a year or so. And when he finally comes back into the public eye, a lot of people are going, well, you know that Joshua Norton, he didn't just lose his fortune. He also lost his mind. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Ben, my favorite spring cleaning takeaway is that post-clean clarity that you get where you're like, wow, how have I been living like this? Yeah, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless and Mint Mobile has phone plans for just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Y'all, it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. And use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Yeah, well, that'll happen. Um, and it's sort of evidenced by the idea that he thought he could sue the guy that gave him a hot tip uh, about a business prospect. That's not really how that works. That's like the equivalent of trying to sue someone that gives you a stock tip and then it tanks. You got no grounds for suing. That is, that's not how that works. That's just, uh, sorry, Charlie, you know, try again next time. That's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's like... It's like someone gives you a bad tip on insider trading. You drag them through the mud and it's like, well, you just committed a felony. Like, that's not a good idea. I mean, obviously, that's not what is exactly happening here, but it's still not a good idea. Yeah, legally, it's fraught. You know, this isn't the same thing, but it, it does remind me of those court cases where uh, a thief will try to sue someone because they they injured themselves when they were breaking into a person's house. Like, stuff like that has happened. There's a great series we can do on ridiculous court cases in the future, but we don't know whether Norton was experiencing genuine mental problems or whether he just decided to wholly embrace a very eccentric lifestyle. We don't know the interior of the man's mind, but what we can say for sure is that a the San Francisco Bulletin 
published a fantastic proclamation from Norton to the editor on September 17th, 1859, where he says the following. No, this is a little long, so I think we should split this up, but here we go. At the preemptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algor Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself the emperor of these United States. Uh, this is just one long sentence, but it, it goes on. I still think it's too long. We should split it up. Oh, here we go. And in the virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the county is laboring and therefore cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. Norton the first emperor of the United States. Okay, okay. So first of all, let's just talk a little bit about the legality of a proclamation. Like, what is a proclamation? Like, you can proclaim just about anything. Like, uh, remember when Trump, like, proclaimed? He, he liked to proclaim things. Remember? What did he proclaim? Well, uh, I, I think more particularly of the proclamations that Europeans made when they arrived on other people's land and they would stroll into these communities and say, I dedicate this land to Spain or this is this is all Portugal now, you guys. Uh, they clearly had these American accents already in their in their statements. These proclamations legally are they're not binding, but you can't really get sued for them. And uh, at the time, these demands or his statement, I want everybody to go to the music hall on uh, February 1st. This wasn't super crazy because secession was already in the national zeitgeist at this time. Abolitionists were increasingly, increasingly upset and rightly so with inaction on the horrors of slavery. And so all we can guess is that the editor of the bulletin just said, hey, you know, let's give it a shot. Slow news day. People are already kind of vibing with uh, this kind of stuff. And unlike Norton's prediction on Peruvian rice, this editor hit a gold mine. Readers loved Joshua Norton. They loved the emperor and other newspapers quickly picked up the story and started spreading around not just this proclamation, but multiple like proclamations, declarations of his. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to me, I think this was a savvy move on the part of an editor in that he recognized this as it, it could be perceived as satire. You know what I mean? Like it was very much kind of poking a finger in the eye of the messy bureaucracy of politics and of government, you know, at a time where the folks in charge weren't really doing much to help the common man. You know, it was, like we said, like very much a lawless kind of period in American history, and it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of interest in the plight of the common man. So this, to me, acts as like a really cool kind of like... um 
critique of that system, you know, in some ways. Like, I don't believe that the uh, the editor of the um, Bulletin believed that by publishing this, it was in some way going to, you know, make this real. But it absolutely made it real in the minds of the readers of sure. the Bulletin. It's also, you know, I, I like what you're saying about satire. It also makes me think of clickbait that we would, we would call it today. And it becomes sort of a currency of communication for people in San Francisco. They want to talk about the latest proclamations. Uh, we have one of the first of his several proclamations in October of 1859. He says, Fraud and corruption prevent a fair and proper expression of the public voice, in consequence of which we do hereby abolish Congress. Boom. Uh, I can get behind that. I can get behind that. Yeah. I I mention this sometimes on stuff they don't want you to know, but you would be surprised how many terrible things historically have a higher rating than Congress, including some uh, STDs. That's a true story in the past. Yep. Trash fires, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'll Uh I'll send it to you. But but here's what happened. People love the story, but Congress, those dirty scoundrels, kept meeting. And so... Norton issued another decree where he ordered a general named Winfield Scott to march on Washington and kick the legislators out. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk talk about proclaiming, right? Right. You often hear that term used uh, with the word self as a hyphenate in front of it, like the self-proclaimed king of New York. That was one of Donald Trump's kind of personas or like, uh, you know, saying world's best cup of coffee. That's self-proclaimed as the uh, proprietor of, like, say, a New York City diner. Nothing really provable in a statement like that, but it certainly turns heads, except that most every diner in New York says they have the world's best cup of coffee or at least uh, in some uh, region. So this goes over really, really well with the public. It is, I I think, largely seen as an interesting satire, a way of kind of poking fun at the absurdity that is Washington. And this guy really becomes kind of this mouthpiece for the discontented public who are absolutely fed up with uh, all of the hypocrisy and do nothingness of Washington. Yeah. Yeah, just so. Uh, He also is existing, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum. So he is also existing as these profound things are happening in the United States. The shadow of the Civil War is looming large. And in response, Emperor Norton announces to everyone that he has dissolved the Union, the entire thing. And now the U.S. is an absolute monarchy. He's at the helm. And this is sort of for it's pitched as a security, stability and safety thing. Uh, He also when when France invades Mexico later uh, in 1861, he shows that he has Mexico's back by giving himself an extra honorific. He styles himself the protector of Mexico. So for those of us keeping track at home, he is now Norton one emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. I love the word honorific, by the way. Um, I had to, I I hear it all the time and and I, I, of course, mainly understand what it means, but um, I did just look it up and there is a a specific caveat to it. It is a title uh, given as a mark of respect, but having few or no duties associated with it. So it's sort of like a symbolic title. Uh, And Norton was just giving those to himself left and right. And he really became, uh, at least in San Francisco, a an absolute 
public figure, a real celebrity. Um, he was treated, for lack of a better phrase, or maybe it's the exact right phrase, like royalty, even though he was somewhat of a, you know, derelict type dude, he was treated with respect by business owners, restaurateurs, theater owners. You know, he was given uh, special reserved seats in restaurants and, and theaters. And he was absolutely in and of himself kind of like a tourist attraction. And the reason I think largely that he was given all of these extra kind of perks was because the business owners knew that if he was there, People would come um, patronize their businesses just to kind of catch a glimpse of him uh, in the hopes that he might like, you know, pontificate or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a really important part. Uh, There is money to be made from the tourism aspect. It also makes the city unique and helps San Francisco build its own mythology. Uh, We should mention this is neat little detail. Norton is now dressing in character. He is dressed in old military clothing from both the Union and the Confederate sides because as an emperor, he's a uniter, you know, not a divider. He also has a beaver hat with, wait for it, ostrich feathers. So he's not just some plain-hatted scamp. And uh, he also has a saber, which is ceremonial. (laughs) He he does... um, Okay, we we want to be sensitive to this issue because a lot of people find themselves unpredictably in bad places. He spends most of his days walking through the streets of the metropolis, quote unquote, inspecting the realm. You know what I mean? Picture him tapping that saber against a bridge and then demanding payment for taxes. And luckily for a lot of the local businesses, he would accept payment in kind. It didn't always have to be cash. Sometimes it might just be a sandwich or a hot cup of soup. And people loved him. He was harmless. Uh, He was memorable. Uh, Writers of the day, as we'll find, even flocked to him as well. I love that he was able to walk around the city demanding things while brandishing a saber and was still considered harmless. I think that speaks a lot to the attitude and uh, wonderful quirkiness that is so famous uh, in the history of San Francisco. I think this is a really awesome character that kind of sums up the uniqueness of, of that city and that people weren't like freaked out about this guy walking around with the brandishing a sword and, and a beaver hat and, and demanding <laughs> yeah. payment for taxes. Uh, it could have gone badly, you know? I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that, like, at least at this point, his mental state, while maybe a little touched, wasn't dangerous, wasn't veering into, like, psychosis or anything, because I could see some uh, altercations bubbling up, you know, yeah. um, if yeah. people questioned him. But I think the, the key was people... I don't even if you know if you call it humoring him, right? I think it really was kind of this like mythology, Ben, like you I said. Would, yeah, I would say they almost adopted him. The city almost adopted him. And there's a lot to be said for bedside manner, right? He wasn't shaking these people down mafioso style. He was probably using the royal we. And he was probably, you know, like, I have always said this is the best cup of coffee in San Francisco. That is a royal proclamation. Uh, Pay me tribute. Mm -hmm. We do regrettably note that you are delinquent in your taxes, a matter that we could solve today with a simple cup of your famous 
coffee. You know what Gratis? I mean? It's something, right. <laughs> something nice like that. I don't think he's like, I, yeah, you make a good point though. He's not threatening people. He has another hat that has a peacock feather. He is given the, oh, he's given this military regalia, by the way, by U.S. Army officers who like him. Uh, he also will, at the slightest invitation, speak extemporaneously on a wide, wide range of esoteric philosophical concepts. He gets some sidekicks. How adorable is this? Bummer and Lazarus, two dogs that would walk around with him constantly as he inspected, you know, roads, sidewalks, public property. Dude, this guy is like an early, like, psychedelic prophet. If you think about it, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. like a Neil Cassidy type figure or like a Jerry Garcia, you know what I mean? Like it very much is almost like a proto kind of hippie sort of, uh, mm-hmm. which obviously became a really huge part of the fabric of San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury and Grateful Dead and psychedelics and all that good stuff. And eventually, like all of that stuff, he caught on in the larger zeitgeist, um, becoming a character in comic operas and cartoons and, and, and novels. And his story kind of started to travel outside of, uh, of Northern California. There was a reporter, uh, a little guy by the name of Mark Twain, who worked for the San Francisco Daily Morning Call, um, and he uh, reportedly was inspired by him to create um, a royal imposter character of his own, known as The King, in uh, a little book called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, that I think they don't make kids read anymore because of uh, problematic language. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned this because there was a wonderful... There's some wonderful work by a scholar named Shelley Fisher Fishkin who suggests that Huckleberry Finn in both Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn was himself not white. And that changes the way the book is processed. But oh wow. Yeah, but Mark I never Twain heard is, that. Huh. Yeah, Mark Twain's complex. I took a couple classes on him back in college. And I actually read his biography, which I love you, Sam, but it needed an editor. But your point holds. So Mark Twain, Neil Gaiman, Charles Bukowski, Robert Louis Stevenson, Christopher Moore, tons of authors and artists are inspired by this guy, as are, I would argue, many businessmen who exist Mm -hmm. contemporaneously with Joshua because they get into the merchandising. We can't forget about the merchandising Photographs of him become these incredibly uh, sought-after souvenirs. If you walk into shops across downtown, you'll see people are selling dolls, little Emperor Norton action figures. Uh, He has a free seat at the opening night of virtually every play in every theater in town. He rides the train for free, uh, and and he he, he eats for free at restaurants by exchanging a imperial seal. Exactly. And, um, you know, you mentioned the merchandising stuff, and we obviously know that this dude had a background in business, uh, and I think we could argue that he was pretty good at it. He made a couple of poor choices, but definitely made a good go of it. Maybe uh, greed got the better of him. But I think he was able to parlay some of those skills into his merchandising, um, because he got a cut of everything. Ah, yeah, he was still considered cash poor, but he he definitely, he wasn't hurting 
for the necessities of life. The city, again, had just decided to take care of him, but he didn't, you know, he didn't have like cash on hand to buy a house. I love the idea of quote unquote paying for a meal with an imperial seal of approval. It's like a a story about Fran Drescher one time trying to uh, pay a restaurant tab with signed photos of herself, which I would have accepted. Exactly. It reminds me of the way that the comedian uh, Pat Oswald described the town I used to live in, Athens, Georgia, as a place where the streets are paved with marijuana and you can buy a sandwich with a song. Uh, that's uh, Athens is sort of like our little mini San Francisco here in the South, home to bands like B-52s and uh, Neutral Milk Hotel and uh, R.E.M. Oh, yeah, and all that course. good stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also want to give you a shout out. If Joshua, wherever your majesty, wherever you are, if you are listening to this today, well done on having your own currency, bro. I can't believe I'm calling an emperor bro. But uh, in 1871, a local printing firm ran off special currency with a picture of Norton I and his imperial seal, and he loved it. He started passing out the notes as his official government bonds, so he would like pay for a meal with these, you know, with these Norton bucks and uh, people kept them. They didn't really trade them. Uh, they, they kept them and displayed them. Like you would see it on the wall of a restaurant in a frame with the Imperial seal. And uh, you, you will still find coin collectors uh, trying to buy these Imperial bonds today. And the funniest thing is, the same social class of people that were hanging out with him before the Peruvian rice debacle, they also got in on the game. They dug it. Like local lawmakers would buy him new clothes from the public funds, and no one had a problem with it. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. 
So we talked about how, you know, the, the, the whole start of this Emperor Norton craze uh, was the result of him having written sort of an editorial to the, um, what was it, the Bulletin, the San Francisco Bulletin, I believe, where he proclaimed himself to be emperor. And they published it, I think, with a bit of a tongue implanted in cheek knowing that it would cause a bit of a stir, and it did, and I think it did way more than what they were expecting. But the newspapers of San Francisco actually started to kind of take advantage of this and published fake proclamations, and they signed his name to them, which, uh, that's a little bit uh, above and beyond the original act of betraying the king. Yeah, that feels like they're treating him like some sort of clown. Uh, and if he was, in fact, you know, suffering from some mental illness, I would argue that this is uh, pretty opportunistic and nasty. But here's the thing. He flipped the script. He saw that this was happening, and he didn't like it one bit. And the man also had important things to say. He was not all just bluster and, 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 uh, and pomp. In 1870, he began publishing his actual proclamations almost exclusively in an African-American-owned um, newspaper, an abolitionist newspaper, in fact, that came out weekly. It was called the Pacific Appeal. Uh, and at this point, he began to speak to the rampant inequality that was happening in the United States. And he began speaking about how African-Americans ought to be given the same rights as white men um, and should be able to attend public schools and ride in public streetcars. He even spoke to the plight of the Chinese uh, immigrants that were, you know, uh, flooding into San Francisco, obviously, who were doing a lot of the work that white men did not want to do and were relegated to their own kind of ghettos and treated like absolute third class citizens. Um, that's another thing that you'll see in Deadwood. If you watch that show, they have their own whole little kind of area that they are not allowed to come out of unless at the behest of uh, the white man. And that's according to the president of the Emperor's Bridge Campaign, which is an organization that uh, researches Norton's life and shares his stories. He also said that Norton was famous for arguing for the rights of Native Americans and was very anti-political corruption. So all of this stuff holds true about the initial kind of satire of his character. But now he's really kind of like taking it into the realm of like public discourse, you know, and really getting people riled up and saying the things that a lot of people were probably thinking, but were afraid to say. Yeah, uh, Lumia says that Norton made himself into an early champion of the values of fairness and tolerance and the common good, and this was a positive symbol for San Francisco. There are some stories that exist that feel kind of like possible tall tales, such as the idea that Norton was actively anti-racist. One of the best examples of this, again, this is not confirmed, is that during one uh, riot where the white population of San Francisco was uh, wreaking havoc in the Chinese section of town, he put himself in the line of fire between the two sides and just loudly recited the Lord's Prayer until people were bemused and left. Uh, But his, his acts are also prescient. He did, this is something really interesting. This is something I'd I'd love to end the show with because history, as William Faulkner says, to paraphrase Faulkner, uh, history is not over, right? The past is not even past. One of his decrees was that there must be a bridge joining San Francisco and Oakland. And at the time, residents of San Francisco were 
kind of concerned that Oakland might become the major economic hub of the West because it might become the major rail hub. The Bay Bridge was actually completed in 1936. Unlike his predictions about rice, Norton was correct about this bridge. They built it exactly where he recommended it should be. And to your earlier point about hipsters, I want to add some fuel to that idea. Before people even used the word hipster, before San Francisco became known as this epicenter of eccentricity, I like that phrase, uh, you could see Norton riding around town on a fixed gear bicycle someone gave him. He was riding fixie. on his own little fixie, yep. <laughs> and uh, he also would fine people actively. He would give people a $25 fine if anyone ever called their city Frisco instead of San Francisco, similar to, you know, people saying Hotlanta. Yeah. People also from San Francisco hate it when you call it SF. That's the worst. Uh, that would probably be the modern equivalent of Frisco, which is just like so passe that, that people don't even utter it. Um, yeah, he was definitely an early kind of hipster um, evangelist, you know. And again, back to my earlier uh, point about him being kind of this proto hippie sort of like uh, defender of, of the weirdness of San Francisco. I love it. But uh, unfortunately, in 1867, there was a new regime in place running the police force and vagrancy became a real priority or the elimination thereof. A uh, overzealous cop, apparently, you know, trying to make a name for himself, not knowing uh, what the score was here, arrested the emperor on this charge of vagrancy. And the city's newspapers absolutely blasted the guy, citing Norton as being a local institution. And, uh, quote, since he has worn the imperial purple, he has shed no blood, robbed nobody, and despoiled the country of no one, which is more than can be said for his fellows in that line. Uh, the police chief, Patrick Crowley, realized that he had a PR nightmare on his hand, and he ordered that Norton be released and even issued a formal apology from the police force. And his story continues. He's a real class act about it. This guy is one of my favorite people, just full disclosure. And I'm going to, at the end, recommend some excellent resources to learn more about him. So when, when this formal apology occurs, how cool is this? The emperor officially pardons the policeman who arrested him. And then from then on, from that point on, all law enforcement in the city picks up this habit of just saluting the emperor when they see him on the street. Uh, he didn't always have these crazy days. And there's a big question. I'm sure a lot of our fellow ridiculous historians are wondering. Uh, it's a question we can answer. He was not homeless. He was not sleeping rough in parks. He lived in a rental. He had a rented room, you know, in an, in a building. And on his average days, he would just walk around, like we said, but he would also play chess. He would go to various religious services. He would spend a lot of time reading in libraries. So he, he had attained a sort of serenity and peace and become a symbol of a fast-growing city. But he remained human, as all emperors and paupers are. On January 8th, 1880, he collapsed on the corner of California and DuPont Streets. Uh, DuPont is now known as Grant Avenue. He was going to watch a lecture at the California Academy of Sciences. People are panicking. 
Because again, people love this guy. Uh, the police get him a ride to the city receiving hospital. However, he dies before that carriage can make this scene. And this is when people start to pull back the screen. Uh, authorities go to the room where he's living in this boarding house and they're able to say, yeah, he wasn't living high on the hog. He had about five bucks on him when he fell in the streets and they found a gold coin worth about $2.50 in his room. And he had a bunch of hats and caps. He had letters that he had written to Queen Victoria and uh, he had a collection of walking sticks. But everybody... And now, not just people in San Francisco, all the papers of note across the country are publishing the news, including the New York Times. Uh, you're seeing these headlines that say stuff like, the king is dead, and no citizen of San Francisco has been taken away who would be more generally missed. Somewhere between 10,000 to 30,000 people turned up at the funeral. Yeah, he was definitely beloved um, and, and was this fixture and this almost kind of like masthead of San Francisco and it's uh, kind of burgeoning weirdness. So it makes sense that he was embraced in that way. But it, it does bring me back to, you know, the circumstances of his death, so little money in his pocket. And, you know, the, 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 you mentioned he had a rental. I've seen it described in a couple places as kind of like a, a dingy flop house, you know, like very, like the lowest tier of rental, which I'm sure there were quite a few of in that city at the time. But there's a guy by the name of Joel Gazis Sachs, who is the president of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance of South Orange County. And he's written a couple of pieces where he kind of describes Norton's mental state. Uh, in one essay he wrote called The Madness of Joshua Norton, he has this to say. My guess is that Joshua Norton suffered from major depression, which accounts for his neglect of his person, his work, and other necessary aspects of his life. He fought this using the mechanism of what psychologists call a histrionic personality. By his dress, by his manners, by his attendance at public gatherings and church services, and by the publication of his proclamations and other documents in the city's newspapers, he kept himself at the center of attention. When he acted the role of the emperor, people looked at and listened to him, and he was able to earn for himself a modest living. His shtick enabled him to keep going after the stunning defeats he suffered during the 1850s. It negated his pain. It's interesting to say that because we should point out that while, while that exploration is in good faith and it is sincere and it's well-written, uh, this author is not themselves a psychiatrist nor a psychologist. And during True. Norton's life, uh, no one did any kind of medical examination in that regard. They just called him mad because it helped sell the story. There's a there's another great article called His Majesty's Psychosis, The Case of Emperor Joshua Norton by Eric Liss. You can find this um you can find this online. And I think these are two things two works that complement each other uh, very well. Uh, and I do recommend reading them. Also, Gazza Sachs wrote several pieces, right? Um, he did. In, he did. Both in 1997, The Madness of Joshua Norton, which you quoted, and Diagnosing Norton, which is a shorter piece that sort of addresses what people are talking about when they say Emperor Norton was mentally ill. You can find both of these, by the way, on the awesome resource, emperornortontrust.org. 
He sure can, and just to just to sew it up with uh, with Sachs, he openly acknowledges, you know, that he is not a psychologist or psychiatrist, and that he, what he's doing is just sort of more of an exploration through the lens of his expertise and background in depression. You know, just like um, as a a lay a lay person, mm-hmm. and and it's quite possible again because you know, uh, in the defense of both of these scholars, there was not a medical assessment at his time, but he was. He was very much beloved. Uh, he was originally going to be buried in a potter's field, right, in a pauper's coffin. But a group of San Francisco businessmen called the Pacific Club said, you know what, we are going to pay for a quality rosewood casket. The funeral procession on January 10th, 1880, where, you know, I said somewhere between ten to 30,000 people attended, that procession was two miles long. He was buried in the Masonic Cemetery. Later, much later, 1934, his casket gets moved to the Woodlawn Cemetery. The entire Masonic Cemetery is relocated. Uh, about 60,000 people came just to see that internment. There's a new tombstone that reads Norton One, Emperor of the United States, and, of course, Protector of Mexico. And now... You know, like like we said earlier, even today, people kind of debate over whether there was a genuine like delusion, histrionic personality, major depression, or was it all just a, a tongue in cheek hustle? It's I don't know. It's tough to it's tough to guess. But there's there's no arguing that ultimately he was good for the city. And it seems like the city was good to him. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And um, he, I think, was acting in good faith uh, in an attempt to be good for the country. And we have this really cool timeline from ThoughtCo of his official acts uh, as emperor. I think that might be a fun way to wrap this up. You want to round robin these bad boys, Ben? Sure, of course. October 12th, 1859. Like I mentioned earlier, that's when he abolishes the U.S. Congress. And December 2nd, 1859, a very early proclamation showing um, his uh, his kind of progressiveness. Um, he declared that Governor Henry Wise of Virginia should leave the office for the execution of abolitionist John Brown and that John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky be inaugurated in his place. Yes. And then, uh, as we mentioned again earlier, July 16th, 1860, he dissolves the United States of America. And this was, you know, a move against uh because of civil war tensions. Exactly. Uh, then we've got August 12th of 1869. He dissolves and abolishes the Democratic and Republican parties due to party strife. And on March 23rd, 1872, this is another one we mentioned, uh, he orders a suspension bridge to be built ASAP from Oakland Point to Goat Island and from there on to San Francisco. Which, as we know, totally ended up happening. Then finally, September 21st, 1872, he ordered a survey to determine whether a bridge or a tunnel was the best way to connect Oakland and San Francisco. Turns out they went with the bridge. He's making moves. He's, he is making moves. If you want to learn more about Emperor Norton, we have mentioned, of course, the EmperorNortonTrust.org. Uh, this guy will be familiar to any Discordians in the audience because he is a patron saint of Discordians. And now there are uh, ongoing efforts by the Emperor Norton Trust to rename the Bay Bridge, or at least part of it, 
for Emperor Norton, which I don't think is asking too much. That's kind of cool. And it sort of immortalizes him, you know, well, or it's even sort of, more so. It, it's sort of like interstates, you know, where you'll have like the official name of the interstate and then a subtitle with it, with a, a, you know, like a, a nickname, you know, based on some historical figure or person that was responsible mm-hmm. for uh, the uh, infrastructure. Uh, and, and lastly, I just want to say, um, if you go to San Francisco, uh, you could take a walking tour of the life of Emperor Norton. Uh, and you can find that on Atlas Obscura. A new map tracks the life of San Francisco's Emperor Norton uh, by Sarah Lasca. And there is a Google Doc uh, embedded, a Google Map uh, rather embedded, uh, showing some key points um, of, uh, that, that uh, represented the kind of trajectory of his life. And uh, I don't have any plans to go to San Francisco anytime soon, but I hope to. And I, when I do, I definitely am going to do this. And one teaser. Consider this the stinger on the end of the episode. If this were a Marvel movie, the stinger is this. Emperor Norton is not the only person in the U.S. who one day just declared themselves royalty. Those are stories for another day, but we hope you enjoyed this exploration of San Francisco's emperor as much as the three of us did. Thank you, of course, to the people of San Francisco. Thank you, of course, to Norton, first of his name, the emperor of the United States. And uh, equally... Just as importantly, thanks to our one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Maximilian, he's the man. Um, He can do all the things that no one else can. Uh, That's how that goes. Um, Huge thanks to Max's brother, uh, another one of our men, um, Alex Williams, who composed this theme that you are hearing in your ear holes this very minute. And of course, thanks to our own Mad Emperor of Quizzery, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat. Thanks to Eli Banks and Diana Brown of Ridiculous Romance. Do check out their show. It uh, it personally just tickles the hell out of me. Tee-hee. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. 